It's 1989, and the CEO of Pepsi Canada is on stage with the Canadian Prime Minister. The police are on high alert, and cameras everywhere are ready to record the much-anticipated presentation to a full house. Suddenly, the lights go out, and a lit-up vending machine is rolled out into center stage. The keynote speaker picks up a machine gun and blows the competition to pieces. I knew I couldn't go back. Your you wife. just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. Instinct and intuition. Instinct you're born with, intuition you can hone. And those two things in business or in life are the two most important things. Kevin Roberts is best known as the former CEO worldwide of Saatchi & Saatchi, one of the world's leading creative organizations handling more than 50 of the most valuable global brands internationally, with a team of more than 7,000 people in 82 countries. Kevin Roberts is famous for his positive and inspirational leadership style and has an extraordinary ability to generate ideas and emotional connections that has made him a well-respected business leader. Robert started his career in the late 1960s with iconic London fashion house Mary Quant and went on to become a senior marketing executive on the Gillette account for Procter & Gamble. At just 32, he became CEO of Pepsi Cola Middle East and later Pepsi's CEO in Canada, overtaking Coke in the hard-fought cola wars. Roberts also developed a highly successful and groundbreaking approach to marketing and advertising he calls Love Marks, which was named one of the top 10 ideas of the decade by Advertising Age in 2009. Kevin Roberts is unstoppable. He's incredibly enthusiastic and positive, with an energy that's palpable. You just have to be in the room with him for five minutes before you feel like you're fired up and ready to take on the world with your own ideas. Lucky for me, I got to sit down with him recently in Los Angeles. That is, once he found me on his navigation system. We are with uh, Kevin Roberts, and where are we, Scott? We're in Los Angeles, California. Well, thank you for coming down. I'm glad you made it here because apparently the directions we gave you were not that great, but you did manage to find your way. Yeah, uh, wasn't <laughs> helped by the Australian Louise, you know, yes. who seems to look where she thinks south is north and north is west and yes. Australian. Yes, all yeah. over the place. Uh, I, I think the first thing I need to do is just thank you for letting me use the Saatchi and Saatchi building for the launch of my book back in 2004. I needed a space and uh, you had a pretty good one there at Saatchi and Saatchi in, in New York City. It was an inspirational space, right? And, yeah. Uh, it was the brothers that found that place in Tribeca before De Niro made it Tribeca. So we inherited what was a fantastic space. Although... On, on 9-11, I was in my office, and you remember that, and we actually saw the planes come flying right in front of me uh, at my eye line. And then we rushed to the end of the building. We went into lockdown for two days as we saw this wow. horror unfold. So it was a terrific sort of location in the center of the world, and we saw that. But then we were also in the same place when the miracle of the Hudson happened, when yeah. he landed right in front of us. Oh, you know, did that Hudson happen right, right in front of you? Right in front of us, yeah. Really? And we were there for that too. So it's amazing you get those 
two events, which couldn't be more different. So that's probably where people know you from the most, right? If you, you say Kevin Roberts, they probably immediately associate you with Satsi and Satsi, do you think? I've never thought about that. It depends. I guess if you live in New Zealand, I was at Lion Nathan running yeah. a beer business for eight years, and beer's pretty important for New Zealand culture. Yeah. I guess if you talk about it in rugby terms, you know, I was on the board of the All Blacks and I was chairman of USA Rugby, so rugby guys wouldn't know I was ever in advertising. They'd know I was in New Zealand and with yeah, the All so Blacks. So it depends on the, on the exactly. context. But yeah. that was, it's, a, it's been a big chunk of your, of your life. Yeah, I think it's been... I mean, I was at Pepsi and P&G, right? Yep. So formative years... Um, I was, I mean, I was very lucky. I was, I was born in the 60s, born in 1949, and I was part of the 60s. And my first job was with Mary Quant, yes. right, who designed the miniskirt and who was really avant-garde and ahead of everything. Radical for her time. Radical, right? Yeah. And uh, so I was with her for three years. So my first three bosses were all women. They all taught me about creativity, connectivity. So a lot of people, if they're still alive, remember that time. Got so much to cover, but I, I I'd love to start now, with the story when you were working for Pepsi in Canada. It was a a pivotal time with the this this cola war that was going on, and you came up with this radical way of getting some attention. And I just wanted you to take us to this stage show where you have the Canadian Prime Minister, I believe, was up on the stage with you, and then you decide on this stunt. And I wonder if you could just set up what this stunt was. And then we'll, we'll get to the end of the story at the end of the interview. But, okay, so there you are with the Canadian Prime Minister. The police are there. And you have some crazy idea in mind. And how, how does it evolve from there? We were in Toronto, which is establishment Canada, right? Yeah. And it was a black tie event. And uh, Brian Mulroney was the president of Canada, Prime Minister of Canada at the time. And it was at the time of the uh, NAFTA agreement, the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement. Very controversial. It was like Brexit today. And in Canada, there was a lot of arguments saying, listen, if we have a free trade agreement with the U.S., on the one hand, that'll open up the U.S. to us. On the other hand, it'll open us up to the U.S. and we will get swamped, we Canadians. I was very, and am, very pro-free trade. Yeah. Okay, very pro-internationalism, global, globalization is a bad word now, but I actually think free markets, free labor is probably a really good thing for mankind. Anyway, Mulroney was also pushing it. So we said, look, we're having this big black tie event. Everybody's there. Would you like to have that as a podium to speak? He said, yes. TV were covering it. And he came in with not only police, the Royal Canadian Mounties. We had been in Canada for 100 years. Coca-Cola at that time had a corporate US-owned entity, whereas Pepsi was with 47 local Canadian entrepreneurial bottlers. And I said, and look, you know, these entrepreneurs, they've been in Quebec, they've been in Vancouver, they've been in Newfoundland for 50 years. They're family businesses, man. And we are winning and we are going past Coke for the very first time this month. And at that moment, the curtains behind me opened and a very big, distinctive red and white Coca-Cola vending machine appeared like a Dalek from Doctor Who on the screen. I at bent, a Pepsi event. <laughs> at a Pepsi event. And the crowd, of course, are just, what is going on? I bent down, picked up a machine gun and said, this is what will happen when free trade comes. We in Canada will blitz America. And I shut up the Coke machine on stage. 
Okay. <laughs> As and you the, do. And, and the Canadian <laughs> Prime Minister is there and the Mounties and all these people. There must, have, there must have been a gasp in the room. There must have been a... Well, half the room were under the tables. They hit the floor. <laughs> Ladies in gowns and tiaras and jewelry flying up all over the place, right? Some of the... Now, you could never have done this in Texas or and Arizona. You, I don't know if you could do it today, <laughs> no, right? I, like today. Yeah. 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 What, what year was this? This was in 1988. Well, I think that kind of epitomizes who you are. You're, you're, you've <laughs> always been a radical guy. And we'll, we'll, I want to find out what happened at the end of that. We'll talk about that at the end of the interview. But... That sort of, I, I guess, no matter where people know you from, if there's one thing they would say about you is that you are radical. And, and you were talking about your start in, in the business and, and the influences that you had, these women, these radical women. And that's, that was probably the best stat you could ever have got, right? Yeah, I, c I can think of nothing better. It was about creativity. It was about speed. I mean, our product life cycle, I was on the cosmetic side of Mary's business, introducing, mm -hmm. you know, fashion and beauty. In fact, my first job for her was as a makeup artist in Harrods. Can you so. tell us, uh, if some people might not know her as, as much as, you know, people living in Britain, but can yeah. you give us some context as to who she is? She was the inventor of the miniskirt, for which we're all grateful. It was the time of the pill. This was women's some liberation. Others, yes. Some more than others. <laughs> but women were very grateful for it because they became assertive, they became strong, they became... Uh, proud of themselves. She also invented tights at the same time, which was even more helpful for them. But she was the icon of British fashion. She was the forerunner of Vivian Westwood and all these crowd that came later in the punk era. So she was really um, the grand dame, the icon, the Chanel of group. She let women become uh, of all ages, of all sizes, of all incomes, free, really, and confident. And that's, that's sort of a great start for you when you say that um, your company motto sums you up as a, as a person. You say it's radical optimism. So it's not just a matter of being radical, but it's the, the, the idea of being optimistic attached to that. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, I think it's, it's vital, right? Because, you know, we're living in a world right now which lacks leadership. It lacks hope. It lacks optimism. You look what's happening in the UK with Brexit. You look what's happening in, in France. In, in France. Yeah. Uh, you see what's happening in the US. Uh, at least in, in Canada, we have Trudeau. But there's not a whole lot of optimism. You see what's happening in business with Facebook, with Google, you know, being... Yeah. And it's complex, right? So I think, you know, with the world around us, you can either sort of be a, what I call a BMW, a bitcher, moaner, and whiner. Oh, okay. Wow, or, I haven't heard that before. Okay. <laughs> with apologies to our, our friends in, uh, in Germany, but you can either be a bitcher, moaner, whiner, or you can get up and do something about it as you're trying to do here with Bucket, right? Yeah. Get off, get up, stand up and fight, they call it in Munster, in Ireland. Stand up and fight. And I am massively optimistic. I think that the, the generation that we're seeing come through now, the younger generation... These guys are full of hope. They're full of vitality. They are full of belief. They think over the next 10 years, from the age of 20 to 30, they can explore, they can connect, they can create, they can collaborate, they can have fun, and they can make a difference, and they can have an impact. Don't you think it is amazing, though, that there is so much optimism with so many young people when you consider what they're up against right now, what they're hearing every day? And like you said, that there isn't this sense of hope coming from our big leaders, 
like in the United States? Uh, I don't think it's amazing at all. I think it's completely predictable. Really? It's what happened in the 60s. You know, when there's apathy, when you have the, the generation before you kind of screwing it up. Yeah. When you're youth, you know, hope springs eternal, right? Well, so sense. you look at all this and now we've got connectivity so that none of them are alone now. Mm. Okay, there's all kinds of pros and cons on all this connectivity. But in the end, the good outweighs the bad, right? Because now you can connect, you can collaborate, you can create in a tribe that has no frontiers, no boundaries. Were you always an optimistic person like when you first started off and you 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 had a, a really interesting stat in life i mean you you kind of got thrown a a bad cat i guess you could say uh early on right 17 years old big pivotal change in your life yeah i i've been optimistic yeah i came from a working class class home my parents both left school at 14 it was typical of the time then we this had is no in money england. in england and, but you call yourself a new zealander i mean i've heard you say it often yeah i'm, I'm a new zealander yeah. but you're born in england yeah I left, you've lived all around the world. I'm just wondering why you identify with New Zealand and not England. Yeah, uh, be, I left England uh, uh, pretty much as soon as I could when I was 23, 24, because I didn't like uh, the class system. I didn't like the social system. I didn't like the the splitting of the company into haves and have-nots. And so I was attracted in the end to the New Zealand spirit of egalitarianism, really. And people don't care where you went to school or who your parents were they care about who you are and what you're going to do and that really has always appealed to me in the u.s it's race Mm. in the uk it's class in new zealand it's just such a small melting pot where everybody together is doing it you know it's hard it's so small new zealand we're so far away so we better all work together so the sense of community the sense of tribalism the sense of uh, uh, optimism and belief it's very high, right? At Saatchi, we all believe nothing is impossible. I, I agree. And uh, I'm seeing that, that optimism that you're talking about in young people having a daughter who's 23 and meeting all her friends. I love being around them. I love right. asking them questions about what they think about the world. And it's, it, it is amazing to me, and I think you summed it up nicely, but it is amazing to me that they, they remain optimistic about what's ahead because maybe we're analyzing too much as we get older sometimes about the world, but they do see a bright future, which gives me some hope, you know? Yeah, and they're right. I mean, my whole, I think purpose is everything, right? You talk about bucket list, I think it about it in terms of purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you know, if you don't have a framework, if you don't have a set of beliefs, if you don't have a set of uh, real goals, you have no framework. If you don't know where you're going, all roads will take you there, right? Mm. So once you have that purpose, and I think everyone should have a focus. I want to go back to your life story because how would you describe your upbringing? Was it a happy upbringing or was it a challenging upbringing? What, what was it like up to that age of 17 where you had this pivotal moment? Uh, it, was, it was pretty average till I was 11. You know, my father was a security guard in a mental hospital, which pretty much... Same job I had at Saatchi and Saatchi, really. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he used to work from seven till seven in wow. pretty tough situations, six, six days a week, come home. And as soon as he got home, he would be met by my mother telling him all the problems, bad things I'd done that day. Oh, the bad things you'd done. <laughs> do you have brothers and sisters? I do, yeah. one of each younger. And off, off would come his leather belt. Oh, boy. And, and I would get a belting every day for three or four years. 
which was no different to really the way that everyone was brought up where I lived on a council estate. You know, I never had my own bed, never had my own room till I was sort of 17, 18, till I left home. So I ran away from home six or seven times. Luckily enough, I got a scholarship at the age of 11 to go to a grammar school, which was a fantastic school, uh, Lancaster Royal Grammar School. Where and you did well at school. I mean, you were quite Yeah, academically, at- was very good. I did all my exams a year early. I was captain of rugby, captain of cricket. It was very good. I... And then they threw me out, right? So I got kicked out at the age of 17. And they kicked you out, why? Well, I told everyone that it was because of a personality problem between me and the headmaster. Yeah. Um, I had one and he didn't, was uh, what I put out. My, my girlfriend at the time became pregnant. My headmaster, who was from the South, uh, from Cambridge, said, oh, well, you obviously can't have the baby and you have to you know, stop, uh, stop seeing her. Uh, you know, you can't possibly come to school with that situation so just get that sorted out and I said that's not how we do things up here uh, so he threw me out so I had to take four jobs straight away because I got married on the Saturday had a wife and a child no money nowhere to live no friends with any money no jobs no nothing so it was a um, yeah Malcolm Gladwell like tipping point beginning uh, oh it was exciting I mean I loved it I was yeah. tired of school I didn't really want to go to university that much yeah. so then you said you 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 leave home and then you start work and then you have this wonderful opportunity to work with really strong, radical women. Yeah. And I believe you said that they're the ones that taught you what love was. Yeah. And, and how did they do that? What was the... What well, was it they're unbeli- so they're in the fashion business. It's moving at lightning speed in, in those days. You know, you had, you had to be in and out of a product in one season. So everything was fast. Everything was emotional. We had no research. We had no data, no big data. We had no technology. It was simply EQ, flair, feeling, emotion. Gut emotion, right? Absolutely like right. Just gut and instinct speed, on things. Right? And you better hone it. And you better be out there with the people. And their view was there's no point asking people what they want because they don't know what they want until they see it until they see it when it's too late yeah so it's they taught me that it's not what consumers say or do that count but how they feel and they will never tell you how they feel so you have to get out there if you want to learn about how a tiger hunts you can go to the zoo or the jungle you probably learn more by getting into the jungle yeah so get away from your computer get away from your screen get away from your office Get out of there and observe like an anthropologist and then figure it out. Why do you, what do you, what do you think it was that, that they liked about you as this young man? What, what do you think they saw in you? Because they must have seen something. Uh, what, what they told me was enthusiasm, energy, uh, speed of decision making, no inhibitions. I didn't know enough. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't know enough to be scared. So you didn't overanalyze things. I was 18 years old. I mean, but isn't there something wonderful about that age too, is I I keep saying to my daughter, keep your mind young. Don't overanalyze and paralyze yourself with overthinking things. It's a whole thing, Phil, instinct and intuition, instinct you're born with intuition, you can hone. And those two things in business or in life, are the two most important things. Do you have the instincts to survive? Do you have the instincts to grow? Do you have the instinct to win? Do you have the instinct to create? And are you intuitively, which can be learned and taught, in touch with the world, or slightly ahead of it, slightly ahead of it, not too far ahead of it, 
Are you intuitive in the way things are going to go? And the most important thing about instinct and intuition is to listen to it, right? Mm. Listen to your gut. Don't overthink it. Don't, oh, I mean, I teach the MBAs in Lancaster University and have them for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years on their program. And the critical thing I teach is the anti-MBA. So everything you've learned for the last 10 months here is really good. Put that in your bag. And now let's get back to your instincts and your intuition. Let's think about your EQ, not your IQ. It, right? it can become harder, though, as you get older because you've had more life experience and maybe you've experienced more so-called failures or stumbles. And then you start to overanalyze, well, the last time I tried that, this happened. And so then you start to maybe overthink a little bit. Like you said, when you're young, you have this wonderful, you don't know what you, you don't know. know. And so you just jump in. So as somebody who still exudes this optimism, yeah. how, how have you kept that alive in yourself? Because I think uh, using age is an excuse, not a reason, right? So I think that you actually, what you've got to learn to do as you get older is fail fast, learn fast, and fix fast, right? And the thick critical word in there is the fast, yeah. right? So fail. Hopefully, the older you get, the, the less you tend to fail. That means you're not stretching yourself. You're right. not trying to do things you shouldn't be doing. Well, you should. You should get be falling off your bike. You, oh, should, be, you should be getting grazed knees. Absolutely. Right. Which is what's why, the point? You know, what's the point of protecting yourself from that? And I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed, particularly in the business that I'm in, in entertainment business, is this overanalyzing of things. Well, if that happens, this happens and so on. And, and this, this, the idea or the definition of what failure is it's seen as a negative thing. Whereas I, I keep trying to say to, you know, again, trying to share life lessons yeah. with my daughter. I say, failure is, is not a bad thing. It just means that you tried something, it didn't work, and then you can make a tweak and fix it and go around and find a different way. You have to, right. you have to stumble. In fact, failing is not the critical thing, right? Fail, it's the learning and fixing that's critical. Right. Fixing, right? Don't talk about it. Don't analyze it. Don't sweat it. Fix it. Yeah. Okay. You failed. Bravo. Get over yourself straight away. Yep. Don't indulge yourself in that. What did you learn from it? And now, same day, next day, fix it mm. and start the cycle again. It's a circle, right? When I was at, at Procter & Gamble, I used to make, and, and you know, so I was a general manager when I was like 32, so I was pretty young. So I used to make 30 mistakes a day, okay? 30 decisions a day of which 20 of them would be wrong, okay? 20 of them, right? Then about later when I was running Lion, I realized I was only making five decisions a day and I was getting all of them right. And I thought, man, you, that's why I went into advertising. What a terrible person you've become. You've stopped being brave. You've stopped learning. You've stopped failing. God, get over yourself and start to live again. So I went into a business I'd never been in before as the CEO, right? 10,000 people. We were, you know, a couple of uh, deeply in debt, cash flow problems. The two brothers had just found us, left the company. And then I started making 100 decisions a day and getting probably 70 of them wrong. As long as you fix them all the next day, what faster way is there to grow? And, and to learn. And to learn. To learn and grow, learn and grow, learn and grow. Well, you know that expression, you miss 100% of the shots you don't Absolutely take. Absolutely right. And, and it's, it is really just about trying and trying and trying. And right. it's that, that tenacity. Right. Uh, but you, remember, you've got a, a genius is a man who makes the same mistake once. Right. Right. So try and try again, right. but get it right, right? So learn from your mistakes. There you go. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't keep 
banging your head against no. the wall. If right. it hurts, it's right. probably time to, to, to move on. Right. Um, the, the thing that, you know, I've got a couple of your books that have been sent to us by our mutual friend, uh, Brian Sweeney. Um, Love Max. This is, this is something that I, um, I, is synonymous with this person, Kevin Roberts. Um, and, and Love Max is what? what? How would you describe it? I mean, I love, loved reading your book, but there's so, and there's so many wonderful quotes out of this book. But how do you describe Love Max to people? It's the future beyond brands. We said marketing is dead, right? The idea of creating a brand, creating distribution, creating pricing, those are table stakes now. The role of marketing is no longer to build a brand. It's to create a movement. That's, yeah, that's a right? great quote of yours. You said that. It's, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to start this brand. I'm going to build the brand. I'm going to market the brand. I'm going to push the brand out there. And you say what? Yeah, it's not, that's just one-way stuff. People are not going to take that. Right. Amazing Race isn't a brand. It's a movement. You get yeah. into Amazing Race because it's the idea of freedom, competition. Play. It's, it's a bigger idea Exploration, than a yeah. brand. Yeah. Way bigger, right? And that's the role of marketing today. So we said, so what is the future beyond brands? Because everything was a brand. Everything is, you're in, we're here in LA, which is brand land, right? Yeah. Everybody's a brand. Every show's a brand. Every presenter's a brand. There's brands wherever you look. You've said, you I, I, I heard you say once in a, in a speech, you said, look, you could taste you know, one beer or another, right. except for American beer, you said right. you didn't really like, but you know, you taste one beer or another and it's pretty much beer and it will get you right. drunk and give you a nice buzz. But right. at the end of the day, how do you get somebody to fall in love with a particular type of beer? Not just because of the taste, but because they're in love with that brand. They want to be a part of that brand. We said the role, spot on, right? We said the role now is to not create loyalty for a reason. You know, I mean, all sort of moisturizers nowadays make got you the look, same sort of ingredients right, shampoos how would i know but they you know make your hair shiny there you go yeah. okay <laughs> they do that what the role now of marketing is is to create loyalty beyond reason and these are the love marks right right beyond price i mean your shows are love mark to many many people you're in what 30 31 series some 32 yeah. unbelievable number yeah. right and people are loyal to that show beyond reason. Yeah. Right? Beyond function. Beyond Even promise. when we stumble. We tried right? a family edition once. It didn't really work. But and you're forgiven. They stuck with us. You're yeah. forgiven straight away. Yeah. Because they're loyal beyond your mistakes. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that's what the essence of marketing is today. To create a love mark. Now, when I first spoke about that, you know, you can imagine, right? Social media went crazy. Everybody climbed in. The guy's crazy. You know, they're going to send the men in the white coats to take him away. You can't bring love into business. Ten years later, it was named one of advertising age's ideas of the decade. And now wherever you look, love is being used. Of course, you don't love a brand the way you love your family, your wife, your husband, your dog, your country, whatever. But you feel an emotional connectivity bigger than simply a functional benefit. Because if you're just selling functional benefit, you will be overtaken by innovation. But Kevin, how do you get that? Like, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. You, everybody wants you to, you know, they, they want people to fall in love with them, right? They want, right. You want people to fall in love with your brand. But is, is it something that takes just years of plodding away and, you know, trying to create or pull that, those people towards you? How do you do that? Yeah, I think 
you, you first you've got to start with respect and trust. So the first thing you must deliver is you've got to do what it says on the can. Right. Okay. You, you don't fall in love with a person if you don't trust or respect them. Right. Okay. You don't fall in love with a country. Uh, you know, we're, we're now looking at the U.S. and going, oh, the U.K., do you trust our leaders? Do you trust what they stand for? Do you respect them? And you've got a real big, diverse opinion, right, on that. Yeah. So it starts with respect, trust, quality, all the normal marketing And you've got stuff. to keep delivering on that over day and... Day in, day out, right, right and, and, and that's a core foundation. Then you have to add three things, which most brands don't do. Mystery. Yeah. Because right. the more you know about something, the less interesting it becomes. Yes. If you don't add new mysterious stories into race it's all over so you don't want you've you've got to hold back on some exactly. things don't make it too transparent especially in today's world there's an impulse for brands to share to share everything to show it's, the insides absolutely and you Instead, got to, they should listen 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 it's, listen it's because a, we feel the world through all five senses and we want to smell it we want to taste it we want to touch it we want to hear it we want brands to be part of that full sensorial experience and then the most important secret mystery sensuality intimacy mm. real intimacy you know i look at american advertising man and it does not do intimacy well it tells you stuff it fake you know the whole idea of, of part of where we are fake it till you make it mm -hmm. that's the worst idea i have ever heard okay that's Why? just because people see through that now, they see, especially the younger people, and they will cut you off in three seconds and you will never ever come back again. You cannot fake it till you make it. You've got to deliver. You've got to be intimate. You've got to understand me. Don't yell at me. Don't tell me. Don't advertise to me. Don't market to me. Be with me in my life, but be really connected to me. So listen to me big. Listen to me 70% of the time. It's a little bit, I mean, <laughs> analogy, one analogy would be like dating. You, you, you can't just go full on with, you, you know, trying to pull someone to you. You have to kind of be getting them interested enough that they want to look in to find out a little bit more, right? You want them to come to you rather than so you I haven't dated since them. I was 17, so I'm probably not the right guy to ask this particular question to, but, but I do know that, you know, the most valuable strategic skill in business and the most important one I suspect in dating is listening, yeah. not talking, right? If you listen, and you listen seriously as you're listening now, you don't fake listen, right? But you really listen yeah. to not only what someone's saying, but how they're feeling and what they're meaning. And that's what brands have got to do. Brands spend too much time talking. Yeah. Love Mark spend more my, time My father-in-law has a great, great quote, which is, uh, you can't receive when you're transmitting. Right. You wrote this, uh, this book, uh, Kevin, and you, you shared all of this. Uh, you shared all your secrets. Uh, uh, you put it all out there in a book. Um, you, you do say that <clears throat> it's all about ideas, right? And the world revolves around ideas. I've often said that you have a great idea, but then it's the execution of the idea. And I right. think, how many good ideas have we all seen get thrown out into the world, but then the execution isn't right? Yeah, tell you the truth, I've not seen too many. I mean, I know what you're saying, right? Yes. 
most of the ideas that fail generally fail because they're lousy ideas. Really? So it goes back to something wrong with the idea. Absolutely right. I mean, when I first went to Saatchi, I had all these creative guys telling me, we've got these great ideas in our uh, drawers, right? For a book, for a film, for a treatment, for a show. And I said, well, listen, right? One thing I'm going to do as the leader of the company is if there's a great idea, I'm going to sell it. So I am going to sell it. So you get that to me. Every idea that came to me was rubbish. The reason it hadn't been sold wasn't because of poor execution. It was because it wasn't a great idea. At its core, the idea right. wasn't, wasn't good, good enough. enough. That's, a good le- go. that's a good lesson because um, I've, I've often said that maybe it's the execution of the idea, but now I think you're right. I guess if an idea is that good, <sighs> you can't stop it. Right. You just get out of the way, right? Yeah. And somebody will execute it, even if it's not you. Right. Right. But, but, you know, we live in the age of the idea. Ideas are the currency of our generation, all right? Ideas will change the world. Not politics, not even business people, nothing like that. Ideas will change the world. And ideas will come from everywhere. The point is, we got to make sure they're great, great, great ideas. And okay? you've and then you, execute them. Yeah. And you've been lucky enough in your life to surround yourself with ideas, people. You seem to feed off that. You're not threatened by other people with other great ideas, right? Uh, the reverse is true, right? Bring them on, yeah. right? The more people I can talk to that have great ideas, the more inspired I am, and I can generally get them executed. People ask me, you know, how do you judge a great idea? And I said, you know, over the years now, the first thing I look at is, is it surprisingly obvious? If it needs explanation, yeah. forget it. Secondly, the second reaction you've got to have to an idea is, Tell me that again. Yeah. Because you just want to hear about yeah. it. I mean, I want to talk about that again. Yeah. I'm going to go home now and tell my wife about this most simple idea. Because so that's the first test, right? After yeah. surprisingly obvious. Then the second thing, you ha- the last thing you have to ask is, right, do I want to tell someone right away? Yeah. Because if you don't want to share it, it's not an idea. I've only ever written one equation in my life, right? Which in, in my view is the way you run a great business. It's IQ plus EQ plus TQ plus BQ. Okay. All powered by CQ. You got that? Uh, I'm sort of. Right? I think so. IQ, intelligence quotient, of course. But that's not your SAT score. That's not the IQ that you measure. It's, it's your business IQ. And right. at Saatchi, we measured it on one simple axis out of 100. What's your ability to fail fast, learn fast, fix fast? Score out of 100. That's your business IQ. EQ, emotional quotient. We talked about it earlier. Do you have empathy? Can you walk in the shoes of a customer and a consumer? Can you figure out how she feels? TQ, technology quotient. Do you use technology to win or does technology use you? So what's the difference? Right. So, you know, do you, for anybody listening out there, if you, is this you? Do you take your phone into your bedroom with you? Is your screen the first thing that you look at when you get up in the morning? Do you, have you forgotten to speak to your friends and just text them? Do you walk around on the street on a bike or whatever with your phone in your hand? Are you being interrupted through all your alerts 100 times a day? If so, TQ is dominating your life. Right. Or are you using technology to make things go faster, smarter, happier, and easier. So do you have TQ or not? Most of these people around me are dominated. You know, the average time you look at, number of times you look at your phone a day is 100. 
hundred, three minutes, you're out of action when you're looking at that phone. You have to think about it, relate to it, decide to discard, follow it, put it down, and then takes you two minutes to get back into the flow of what you were doing before you're interrupted. That's, you're just wasting five hours Is a this day. stifling creativity? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And friendship and social mobility. And intimacy. And intimacy. So you've got to have TQ. So IQ, mm -hmm. intelligence quotient, EQ, EQ. emotional, yep. TQ, TQ, technology, and BQ, bloody quick. Mm. You got to do it now. Okay. Don't put it off and don't hang about. All powered by CQ, creativity quotient. Wow. The unreasonable power of creativity. IQ plus CQ plus TQ plus BQ, all powered by CQ. Well, yeah, my, my daughter has this uh, thing now with her friends where they stack their phones on the table, flick them off, and then to, to force Great them TQ. To, 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 to engage. Great example of TQ. Otherwise, you lose friends. Yeah. Friends are not people that you text. Friends are people you're with and you share experiences with. You don't just share photographs on Instagram. Well, you, you're such a people person. Do you think that, that some of that TQ where people are controlled by that technology are losing some of those people skills to, to, to yeah. be able to... to assess somebody's emotional attachment to things and i don't worry about it though because it'll it's it'll self-correct over the next five years it's just like when radio first came in and then or when, when smoking TV. came out there remember and people right? didn't absolutely think, they didn't understand that it was uncool right. to like blow smoke in people's faces <laughs> it'll self-correct yeah that's the you know radical optimism it'll self-correct so uh so you go, tell tell us a little bit more about this journey from leaving these wonderful women who taught you all about love and I, I presume some, you know, gave you some connection to intimacy and all of those sorts of things. Like, where do you go from there? How do you end up at, would you said you were 32? No, I, I left there 22. The Gillette Company at right. the time, you know, the Gillette Company. Yeah. They were huge in razors and blades. So they suddenly realized after like 80 years and being in Boston that they were only appealing to half the world uh, because they had no women products. So uh, they looked around and said, we've got to get into female products. Let's hire some people who've been doing that. And they came to me because Mary's cosmetic business was doubling every three months. There was so you were on their 22. radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, and, and they, they said, you come to me and, and we'll do this and this and this. And we'll, we're going to split the world into four. And we're going to give you the Middle East and Africa. I'd never been there. And you're going to have the whole new product portfolio. The world is your eyes 22. Right. And I had no idea. And uh, I went to Mary and I said, hey, look at this. And she said, oh, you have got to do it. They're a great company. Go on, get moving. You're going to go. You know, it's going to be great for you. You're going to learn so much more. Terrific, terrific, terrific. And I went. And the biggest thing, of course, was I had nothing to do with the success of Mary. It was all Mary. But they, you know, they thought well, I was the marketing manager. I think Mary, so was probably, me. I think Mary right. probably thought you had something to do with it. You, yeah. were, you were a contributor. Yeah, a contributor yeah. at best, right? And so then I went to Gillette, which was absolutely fantastic. We just split the world up into four and I got the Middle East and Africa. And they said, okay, so we sell lots of razors and blades here. Yeah. And now I've made friends that are now my friends this very day. And it, so and it was because it of its there. location, it was a perfect place for, for that part of the world? Women then obviously were very, so no, we, I mean, I was, Beirut was where we started, mm -hmm. but then we moved into Saudi, into Iraq, into Iran, into all these countries and of course it was very complex you couldn't you, there was no mass media no television yeah you couldn't women were burkas right? yeah right so it was really it was like wow man nobody knows how to do this me included so 
this can only be fantastic. What a learning experience. Yeah, yeah every, wow. every day. 22, and, and how long did you do that for? Three years, and then Proctor, Then I decided at 25 that I was going to get, le that I thought I was a fake. Okay, so I thought I'm going to get left behind here. Because Why did you think you were fake? All these MBAs were coming wow. into Gillette. MBAs after MBA, and they were talking languages. I had no idea what they were talking about. I hadn't read what they'd read. I hadn't studied what they'd studied. Remember, I got kicked out of school at 17. And I thought, man, this is going to come to an end. I've been very, very lucky at Mary Quant and Gillette. Very lucky to be with Mary. A genius happens once in your lifetime. Very lucky to be with a big company, Gillette, with no rules, no frameworks, no boundaries, all open. This is going to come to an end. And I'm going to get found out because all these guys are way smarter than me, way more qualified, but there's no way I can go to business school because I can't even get in because I don't even have an undergrad degree. So what's the closest thing to a business school? Procter & Gamble. So I called them up and I said, I know you guys only ever hire people from university and from MBA, and I don't have any of those two things, but I have five years, six years experience and I'm prepared to start right at the very bottom. So the guys in the UK wouldn't touch me, but the guys in Geneva who ran the Middle East said, oh yeah, why don't you come and see us? We'll, you, you got no chance, but come and spend a day with us. And uh, I stayed there at eight years where I learned everything I learned about marketing and leadership I learned at Procter & Gamble. So young people who are listening to this who maybe do go through the system of getting that education or coming out, how do you teach them to go, okay, listen, it's great that you learned all of this. And it's great ah. that you have the piece of paper. However, don't forget that other part of right. what you have that others don't have. You, you've got to fend for yourself in, in many ways. And I think that's a very a good thing to do. Because at 18, you're not really fit for much else, right? You might no. as well go and live outside and see how you go. And then you still won't know what you do. I mean, the degree that your, your mate didn't... And then what you actually do, they, they don't have to correlate. Maybe you're going to be a doctor or whatever, maybe. But generally speaking, university is about learning about life, I think. So do that. So then I, what I try and do then is encourage them, give them some life skills, show them how to write a personal purpose, yeah. figure out what their beliefs and their values are, figure out a framework for the next nine years, 21 to 30. And those years should be nomadic years, experiential years, gypsy years, vagabond years, maverick years. Self-indulgent, maybe a little bit? Uh, you should learn a lot about yourself. I don't think you should indulge yourself. I think you should learn, learn test yourself. Mm -hmm. test, I mean, I saw your bucket list, which you wrote when you were 19. Mm. Is that right? Or, yeah, right. I the mean, first one. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. But look what was on it. Yeah. I mean, that's a real bucket list. Right. It was, but it, it was definitely more self-indulgent than it is now. But, uh, but you know, just like the things that are on my list now are like, I want to spend more time with my dad and do things with my family. It's just a shift, I guess. One of my seven things is make more time for family, friends, and me. Yeah. That's, don't forget the and you part, don't, right? Don't forget the and me. Yeah, no, good, good. I'm good sure thing. you don't. Um, and, and then... Uh, how old were you when you were the CEO at, at, over at Pepsi now, going back to that story? 32. So that's when 32. you were 32 years old. 32, yeah. 32, yeah. Could you believe it? I mean, I mean, it's only, what, uh, 
15 years from when you... you... Know, it was in the Middle East, right? So I was very familiar. Okay, so th from there, and then it was after the Middle East that then you went to Canada. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And how Couldn't did... it be more different. Yeah. I mean, what a contrast. Yeah. And Canadians. the reason for the contrast was that PepsiCo said to me, look, you're one of 15, you know, presidents around the world, and uh, you're not American, you don't have an MBA. And that's why? So they said, so, uh, you know, we want you to go to Harvard and do this senior management program. I mean, that's not going to make any difference to me. I mean, really. Can you imagine your headmaster yeah, right. seeing this, you know, being copied right. on a note? Right. Kevin Rupps will now go to Harvard right. and study. <laughs> so they sent me to do this senior management program at Harvard, right, which was... Yeah, it was not my cup of tea, really, right? So, so I did that, came back, and they said, okay, so that's good. At least we can say you've been to school at some stage. Now you've got to come out of this Middle Eastern thing, okay? And you've got to come back into... Sorry mode. Right. <laughs> Canada. All right, but can we go back to the story now? In Pepsi, right. with the Pepsi event uh, in Canada. Um, again, the Prime Minister is there, the Mounties are there, this big, uh, this big Coke, uh, what do you call them? Vending machine. Vending machine comes out on stage. You get a machine gun out and you fire it at it. And, right. and the audience goes, what the hell is going on? Well, they're on the floor. They're on the time. floor. So my biggest, the thing I was most worried about was that as I picked up the machine gun, one of the Royal Canadian Mounties would put a bullet through my head. So we felt it only appropriate that we would warn the prime minister and get his approval what we were going to do. We said, no disrespect, sir, but your speech might not make, you know, the six o'clock news. You being on stage with a machine gun blowing up a machine, that'll make the six, that'll be the start of the six o'clock news. Yes. Then they'll go into your speech. Yeah. And he was really good. He said, yeah, okay, great. So I used a machine gun with rubber bullets and we had just rigged up the whole vending machine so that it was just little explosives. explosives. Yeah. So we hit it with the, all I had to do was hit it once. Right. And since it was only five yards away, I wasn't going to miss it. And the whole thing blew up, but we never told anyone the story ever for a decade. God. So it was fun. So what was the result then of, of, of that? That was an impetus well, for this the, war, for the yeah, start of the so, war for you. So free trade was passed, but obviously not because of that. Yeah. But um, it was a terrific thing for us because for the next three months, all the Pepsi sales team, whenever they went into any uh, supermarket or any mom and pop store, all the guy would say, God, you work for that crazy guy who shot up the Coke machine. They'd start talking and we'd sell loads of Pepsi. And then we passed them in market share. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, well, that was mainly to do with Diet Pepsi and the Pepsi Challenge. And we had Michael Jackson doing the advertising in those yeah, days, course. Tina Turner and all this stuff. Well, it's so a, lot of, a lot of marketing stuff. So your, your ideas, uh, Kevin, do you, are you one of these people that wakes up in the middle of the night and you've got an idea and you have to write it down? Or where do you, uh, I guess, harvest your ideas? Do you go for walks? Do you run? Do you meditate? Bike. Bike. You're a biker. So this morning, I've been, you know, I was in and out of Venice Beach all the way up here, then all the way back to wherever you go to the end of the pathway up there. So I like, and when I'm in boulders, we're in, oh. in Arizona, so yep. we're, in, we're on the boulders. Yep. You know, I do the circuit, double circuit each day. So for me, ideas come mainly from uh, being with other people, right? 
being inspired by other people, inspired by these vintage uh, French movie posters that are in front of me right now, inspired by new tastes, inspired by chefs, inspired by... Uh, now I'm inspired by everything I'm watching on Netflix, right? I mean, the amount people tell you that television's dead. I mean, we're living in the golden age of television, we right? Are. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. The choices. The quality and choices. And Things you've never heard of that you find ah, and you go, how the hell did I know right. no, this exists? Absolutely spot on. Yeah. So I'm on. inspired by being with others and by teaching and by doing stuff like this. I think curiosity is a great gift, right? Yeah. As soon as you start losing interest or you think you know it all or you've done it all, Kevin, I ask these questions to to all our guests. Uh, if, if you were going to take a road trip, uh, a, well, it could be across America or it could be the length of New Zealand. If you were going to take a road trip and you could take three companions in the car with you from any time in history, dead or alive, uh, who would you take in the car with you? You can drive or you could let somebody else drive, but three yeah, companions. My wife, Trudy, mm -hmm. because uh, I love her. So, you know, I, and I'm happier when I'm with her. My best friend and best man, Robin Dyke, who we call Lance. I've known him for a long, long time. And someone once said to me, you can't make old friends. And what's special about and him? What's, what, what's his... We share rugby. He's a poet now. Yep. Uh, at the age of 75, he's become a full-time poet after having been a academic, a head of HR, an entrepreneur. But we played rugby side by side for years, so he shed his blood for me uh, on the rugby field. Okay, that's, so that's great. There's two and you have one, one more person. Uh, I would take um, my uh, five-year-old grandson, Cameron. Cameron? Yeah. Yeah. You like hanging out with Cameron, huh? He's top man, Cameron. Keeps me young. So <laughs> your last day on earth, Kevin, if, if you had to plan it or if you had an opportunity to plan your last day on earth, what would you do with it? You, could, you can do whatever you want with that day. Yeah, I'd like to uh, watch the All Blacks win the World Cup. Are we going to win in 2019? I think we'll be competitive. Yeah, but the Irish, ooh. They'll be competitive too. But we don't play them till the final if everybody does what they should do. Is that right? Yeah, we play England in the semi. Well, uh, Kevin, you are awesome, man. Thank you very and much. I, I really appreciate uh, you coming in, sharing some of your wisdom with us. It's really awesome. Tremendous. Thank you so much. Thank you. <clears throat> you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget. Ticket before you kick it. <laughs>